Hear the word of the Lord, starting in verse 8. Genesis 3, 8 says this, Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm very concerned that many churches, indeed from that filtering down to many Christians, don't know the worst parts, the worst bad news of the fall. That is, if I were to ask you, what is so bad about the fall? What is so bad about a post-Genesis 3 world? You could probably point to a lot of things. The the brokenness that we see in relationships. The the brokenness that we see in the world. Wars. All these kind of things that are going on. Hopefully you'd be able to point to to death as as one of these results. You would say, well, there's, there's, there's death that was brought to the world. Sickness, harm. All these things were brought to the world with this sin, with the fall. Hopefully you would say part of the the brokenness, part of the problem of the fall is is sin itself. But I think many of us would would fall short of actually saying the, the worst part of the fall. So what is the worst part of the fall? What is the worst of the bad news? Why is sin a problem? Well, the reason sin is a problem and the worst part about the fall is it is now alienated, disrupted relationship between God and man. Creation. God created people good. He is their good creator and He made people to live in relationship with Himself. And so here's what has happened with the fall. The worst part of it is that now that good God who had a good creation, good creatures, good people who He desired to overflow His goodness to and live in relationship with, that has now been disrupted and cut off because of sin. But after the fall... As we see in these short passages, God graciously initiates an encounter with Adam and Eve. Now part of this encounter is not marked with the closeness, the intimacy, the fellowship that man was created to have with their Creator God. Instead it's marked by problems, it's marked by fear, it's marked by hiding, distance from God. See, the reality is is that sin disrupts relationship with God. And this is the biggest problem of the fall, is that sin has broken us off from relationship with God, the God that we were made to know and enjoy and live in relationship with. And that truth is more devastating than we know. But the good news is, is that the story continues, and us hearing and even looking back at the book of Genesis is a reminder that God has been gracious to us. So the encounter begins in chapter 3 as man and woman hear the sound of God walking in the garden. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The most tragic event ever has just taken place. Humanity has rebelled against their good creator God, their father. And God is 
The one who is offended by this, his law, his command is the one who has been broken. We teach our kids when you sin against somebody else, it is your job, you are in the position to go fix the sin, and this is not what we see happening here. Instead of Adam and Eve running to God, God comes walking to them. His command was broken. His word was not kept. His garden was not ruled over and kept as it was commanded to be. And yet, He initiates this encounter with man. He initiates the encounter with humanity by coming into this garden. And He comes, He says, in the cool of the day. So in other words, God doesn't storm up, ripping trees down as He comes. See, I'm going to take it out on Adam. He's going to get what he deserves here. He doesn't come at night... Creeping up on them, trying to scare them and bring great fear into their lives. He doesn't silently trod up to them and whisper in their ear. No, He comes in the cool of the day. His coming is most definitely a coming of judgment, but it is so delicately and graciously couched in God's goodness and in His grace. Now, the beginning of verse 8 may not seem so profound to us, but... Just this beginning of verse 8 is grace upon grace from God toward humanity. You see, Adam and Eve's life isn't just snuffed out instantly. That's what they deserved. You disobeyed, you sinned against your holy God, you're done. That is what they deserved. But instead, they're still alive. They're still in this garden, and God is initiating a meeting with them. God is initiating an encounter with them, and He comes in the cool of the day. And he walks. He doesn't storm and run in, tearing trees down as he comes. He comes to them. He hasn't abandoned his creation. He hasn't abandoned his garden. He hasn't abandoned his image bearers. He graciously comes to them and meets with them. Now this would have been a good word to Israel. Didn't they know sin and rebellion? Alienation from their God? I mean, they're barely out of Egypt and they start whining and complaining They're barely out of Egypt. They're making this golden calf and falling down and worshiping. They need to see this God encounter humanity after sin and how He does it. And He does it graciously. And we too know sin and failures. We fail to obey God's commands time and time again. We are like all the people of God. We complain all the time. We bow down to other gods. False gods. And yet we see that that God is gracious, that He still comes out to meet us. Those who have rebelled against God should see good news in the start of verse 8. Because God is coming after humanity. He is initiating with humanity after their sin. When they should be snuffed out, God graciously initiates. There's going to be judgment. We'll see that as we continue through chapter 3. There's going to be judgment, but He doesn't just completely end their lives, which is what they deserved. And as He's graciously pursued Adam and Eve, He graciously pursues us. He initiates an encounter with us. He steps toward us before we would ever think about stepping toward Him. He has not abandoned humanity. He has come after humanity. He is initiated with humanity by giving them a way, even in His very coming, to come back to Him. He's providing space for them to come back into relationship with Him. But the reaction of this gracious coming isn't what you'd probably like. We see that man, verse 8, he, he and his wife, they hide themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. 
So the sound of God walking in the cool of the day is not a tiptoeing through the tulips for them. This is a sound of judgment in their ears as they realize that they are now naked and exposed before God. In their guilt and in their shame, instead of coming out to be with the Lord and and to dwell in His presence, they run and they hide amongst the trees. The tree is a very good creation that God made to provide them food, to provide them beauty. The trees that were made for good purposes are now being misused by humanity. See, what they're experiencing is death. Now, when we think about death, we think about it in a couple different ways. Because yes, the fall has brought physical death into the world. But this is a a deeper, a worse death. They are experiencing spiritual death, alienation, brokenness in their relationship with their Creator, God. This is what they're experiencing. This is why they run and hide. There was this warning in chapter 2. Don't eat of this tree, for the day you eat of it, you will die. Now, they didn't die physically that day. But spiritually, now there is disruption. There is brokenness in their relationship with God. They're dead in their sin, as the Scripture would say. And they hide from God's presence. The very presence they were made to enjoy. They were made to live in. They're hiding from. And so the transformation from Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day with God to what we have here where God comes walking in the cool of the day and they're running and hiding from His very presence is very tragic and happened very quickly. And we need to feel the weight of this tragedy. Because we are like Adam and Eve, designed by God specifically to know Him, to live in His presence, to enjoy Him. To enjoy His creation. But instead, we know, like Adam and Eve, we know death. So, where we were made to rejoice in His coming, we fear. Where we were made to seek His presence, we run and hide. Where we were made to walk with God, we run the other direction. Where we were made to obey, we rebel against God. Where we were made to enjoy His good provision... We use it for the wrong purposes. Where we are made to have life with God, we experience spiritual death. This is the result of sin. This is the worst part of the fall. This is the worst of the bad news. And it leaves us in a place that Hebrews 4 talks about. Where we are exposed before our Creator. Hebrews 4 says this, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give accounts. That verse is probably more frightening than you can imagine. I like to play hide and seek with the kids. They're not good at it. I can barely count to five or ten before one of them comes to find me. I'm thinking like, I don't... This isn't a hard game. You stay hidden and I seek you out. But no, they come find me. And the other one will will normally make noises so that I can actually find the trail and and come get them. We're not very good at this. It's it's kind of foolish to actually play. We're not playing anything. It's just me coming after you and you just making noise so I'll find you. And as foolish as that is to us as adults to play hide and seek with kids and to think about this isn't actually a game. This is how we are before God. This is how Adam and Eve are. They think they can hide, but instead what they are is actually very much exposed, more exposed than they probably even realize. And the Scripture is clear that we are all born dead in our sin. 
That is, we are all born alienated from God. Exposed before Him. And we're not just talking about physical exposure. We're talking about spiritually. He knows our guilt. He knows the depths of our sin and the depths of our depravity. And we cannot hide it from Him. The very God we were made to know and enjoy, we have been alienated from and our relationship with Him has been disrupted. And we may think that we can cover over our sin, but the Word is very clear that we remain exposed before God. Adam thought he could hide in the trees. But God made those trees. Adam thought that he could cover over his sin. He could hide away where God couldn't find him. But the Word is very clear that God is all places. We see this in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You cannot get away from this God. There's not a place that you can hide. There's not a place that you can hide your sin and your shame and your guilt before Him. You are exposed before God. He knows your sin. He knows your guilt. You are going to be held accountable for these things. God's omnipresence, as we call it, that He is everywhere, that you cannot flee from His presence. There's nowhere you can go. His omnipresence should bring saints comfort, should bring the people of God comfort, should bring Adam and Eve comfort that God is walking in this garden, but it doesn't. It reminds us now, after the fall, that we can't hide from God, that there's nowhere we can go to hide over our sin, that He is everywhere. And so the sound of God and being in His presence should bring us ultimate joy, but instead we want to run and hide. The good news is that God still comes. That God is here. That He hasn't abandoned things and said, forget this creation, forget these creatures. He's graciously come. He could have killed immediately. He could have stormed in. He could have come in the darkness, but He's gracious. And instead of going off on Adam, which is what we would do, my my kids sin against me, disobey my command, sometimes I storm down the hall. Like There's going to be reckoning. They're going to hear the sound of me stomping my feet on the way, banging on the door. They're going to hear it. I'm going to go off on them. God could have done all those things. He's holy and righteous and He had been sinned against, but He doesn't. Instead, He he lovingly questions. What if I were, I'd probably be a better parent if I'd walk down the hall and think, I'm going to lovingly question my kids. So here He says to Adam... The Lord God called to the man, He said to him, Where, where are you? Calls to the man. The reminder that Adam is the head of his marriage, head of his family. Indeed, he's the head of humanity, the representative head of all creatures, of all, all humankind. And he is the one who is ultimately accountable. And God calls to him, He says, Where are you? God isn't searching for information. It isn't to say that God isn't out there saying, Hey, where, where'd they go there? Here a minute ago. I thought they were just right here in the garden. I was walking here and then all of a sudden they disappeared. That's not what God is doing. He's not searching for information, trying to find out their exact location. He's drawing man out. He's questioning man, not for his own information, but for readers, for Adam. So that he could draw them out, so that he could see his guilt, so that he could see his need for God. He's showing them, he's showing us that he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He's questioning them. He doesn't hand down the verdict immediately. He could. could have said, you're guilty. Let's get on with it. Let's go to the sentencing. But he he questions. He draws them out. 
He's showing He's merciful. This questioning is an invitation for them to run to Him, to confess their sin to Him, to turn from their sin and live. He's drawing them toward that. But man's response is not a good one. And in fact, it contains quite a bit of irony. Verse 10, man responds back, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, author is using a little bit of wordplay here. When he says the word heard, this is the same word that's used in other places as obey. It's not obey here, it's heard here. That's a good translation. But here's what's going on, is that he's kind of reminding us of the lack of real hearing and obeying from Adam that has kind of gotten him into this mess in the beginning. So as one author would say, it is precisely Adam's or his lack of hearing that leads to that painful situation. Adam had... Had him hid from God because he hadn't rightly heard God. Adam hides because he knows he's guilty. He knows he didn't properly obey the voice of the Lord. He doesn't properly hear and heed God's word. And in verse 11, here's what we see. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of, the, of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, further questioning, further drawing out. This is a question of authority and adoption. Who did you listen to? Who are you now trusting and obeying? So who did man submit to? Who did man trust? Whose vision of blessing did you buy into? Satan said, you can have godhood, you can have rule, you can have blessing, but you just do it apart from God. God said, you can have blessing, you can have rule, you can have these things, but in submission to myself. And God is saying, who did you listen to? Who told you these things? Who are you submitting to? Who are you trusting? With the serpent came another word, another vision, another source, another way to trust. Other than God's word. And Adam was guilty of listening to the word of another and disobeying God's Word. So this question, who told you and have you, needs to give us pause as well. Because there are a lot of voices out there calling to us, saying different things. Most of them are us. We want to be God. We want to have blessing and rule, but we don't want to submit. But there are other voices that would say, you don't need to submit to God in order to have a happy life. You don't need to submit to God in order to experience blessing. You don't need to submit to God in order to live the life that you were created to make. There are voices out there that will say, you won't surely die. And there are others that will say, you will surely die. And the question is, which voice, which word are we submitting ourselves to? Which word are we trusting and obeying? For us, looking back at this Account looking back in Genesis, we should see that there is one who is a father of lies. We're going to see the effects of, of, the, of his work and his lying. And he has been lying from the beginning, and his voice is very much out there trying to get in everyone's head, saying, You won't surely die. Trust me. Obey me. In a sense, he's seeking to adopt us, to have little children liars. That would think that they don't need to submit to their Creator God. This is where we're at. His voice and His Word take on many forms seeking to adopt and to bring us under His authority. But there's another word too. A powerful word. An effective word. An authoritative and true word. And that is God's Word. 
that would call to us, beckon us to submit and trust it. It would say this is where life is meant to be lived. You are created and meant to live under the good reign and rule of God. So His Word is true and submitting to Him is good and good for us as people. But there's even more that should draw us. That this Word is spoken of in a different degree. In John chapter 1 it says that this Word took on flesh... And dwelt among us. That is to say God's word is so powerful, so effective, so compelling, so drawing. Because it is God himself who comes down to dwell with us. Who once again initiates with us. So where Satan says, you won't surely die, submit to my word. God would come to say, you will surely die. And you have died. And now I will die for you so that you don't have to experience the death that you deserve. It's all in the Word of God. And if you're not a believer, this is the Word that would compel you, would call you in. This is the Word that would say to you, not just submit to me and you'll be happy, but that you haven't submitted to me and I died for that sin. Would you graciously, would you come to me and respond to the grace that I've given to you? And if you're a believer, we know that there are lots of words and voices seeking to invade our minds. But only one word is true and good and is for us to submit to and trust. John 10 speaks about this, that Jesus says of His sheep, that His sheep hear His voice and they follow. But they will not follow the voice of a stranger. That is there. There's competing voices, there's strangers' voices, but sheep ought to follow and trust the voice of their one and true shepherd. Indeed, this shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. The stranger's voice does not lay down his life. He leads to their destruction. Whose voice we listen to, whose word we heed, we submit to and trust, tells us whose we are tells us who we trust as Father. So who tells you what to do? Who's your authority? And this encounter with God and these questions that He gives to man remind readers that there's a stranger's voice that has gotten in and been trusted and is leading to a path of destruction. So Adam's guilt is being drawn out more and more and more, leading up to his confession. See in verse 12, that the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's a great confession for you here. That Adam basically makes excuses, shifts the blame, and only basically admits what he can't deny. So he admits some guilt, but it's almost because he, he can't deny it at this point. And the rest of the guilt he, he wants to shift the blame of and make excuses for. He, he shifts the blame to the woman. Hey, the woman. Now, how quickly we've come from, oh, this is woman, she's been taken out of me. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How quickly we've gone to her. She's the one. She gave it to me and I ate it. Didn't take long. But ultimately he points the finger at someone else. Ultimately, he points the finger at God. Because what does he say? It's the woman that you gave to be with me. 
I was alone and that wasn't good. I agree, you gave me this woman. It seemed like a good thing at the time. But you gave her to me and now I've eaten this fruit. God. you the one who gave her to me. And instead of confessing his sin and pleading for forgiveness to this gracious God who's come to him in the cool of the day, who hasn't stormed up, who hasn't immediately given him the verdict, he dodges and points the finger at others, including God. Eve doesn't do much better. The Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. And this is where... We need some some solid theological truth. We get this from a, a great theologian, and he said this, that sin turns sinners stupid. It may not be appropriate for your kids to, to say all the time, but it's very theologically accurate. Because here's what we see happening all the time, is that sin has a way of, of turning us The wrong direction of turning us stupid and being compounded over and over and over again. Leading us further down and further away into more disruption, to more alienation from the good God we were made to live with. Sin turns sinners stupid. So before we're going to be real harsh on Adam and Eve, we need to think about this. How many times have I been rude and a jerk to my wife only to come to her and say, I'm so sorry I was a jerk to you, but if you hadn't... You ever done that? I've done that many, many, many times. Sorry I was mean to you, but if you wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that. What we're saying is I'm not actually a jerk. You prodded me into it. This is like kids. (laughs) Smack their sibling for something. Why? I had it first. They'll come up with something to justify... There's sin in their lives. Sin turns sinners stupid. I wouldn't suggest that as a tactic for your marriage. To say, well, I was a jerk, but if you wouldn't have done this, like that's, that's on the path of marital destruction as well. And isn't it so obvious that we're sons of Adam? Isn't it so obvious that we've inherited his sinful nature? That we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. That we are alienated from God and it pushes us to where we get to this place where we want to blame others. We want to point the finger at everywhere but ourselves. We have all sorts of ways of saying, I couldn't help it. If you had only known, I didn't mean it. And we're very proficient at this at a very young age. You see this in your children, but just imagine yourself saying those exact same things. Excusing yourself, justifying your sin, shifting the blame. My spouse neglects me, so I look at pornography. My parents weren't mean to me, so I'm allowed to act this way whenever I want. He disrespected me, so I was right to pick a fight with him. We could go on and on and on. We could do what Eve does and say, the devil made me do it. Quick search on Google, the devil made me do it, and you will see all sorts of court cases where this is claimed. It's the devil. It's really his fault. He made me do it. We may not point to others, but we'll point to our circumstances just as quickly, won't we? We're under a lot of stress, so that's why I'm just flying off the handle at every word. This is why I'm so angry when you come disrupt me during my work, because I'm under a lot of stress. Or I'm much, much too busy right now, so that's why I neglect my family and my marriage. 
And you have no idea how I've been abused in my past, so now you can understand maybe a little bit more why I'm doing these drugs. If you knew how much money I make, you'd know why I'm so discontent. And on and on and on it can go. And the Scripture will really have none of this. We look to the book of James, tells us very clearly where our problem lies. In James chapter 1, verse 13, says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person, Adam and Eve and you, put your name right there as we read this, is tempted when He is lured and enticed by His own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We flip over to James chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Your wife is not the way she's supposed to be. Your kids don't behave the way they're supposed to. The circumstances, right? No. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that you are, your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. And you ask because you, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. And we share this problem universally as humanity now. But the problem isn't out there. We don't point the finger out there and say, this is what's wrong with the world. We can look inside and say, I am what's wrong. When we make excuses and shift blame and seek to justify our sin, we really miss the real problem and in turn we will miss the real solution. And this is why it is so important for us to understand that the worst part of the fall is this alienation between God. Because if we don't recognize that that our main problem is that we've been cut off from relationship with God, then we will never seek the right solution which God has graciously put before us. We too are like Adam and in need of forgiveness from God. When what we often look for instead of forgiveness is for God to accept our excuses. C.S. Lewis said this very, very well. I'm going to read this to you, a long quote. The trouble is that what we call asking God's forgiveness very often really consists in asking God to accept our excuses. What leads us into this mistake is the fact that there usually is some amount of excuse, some extenuating circumstances. Sometimes. We would say that almost all the time. There's some extenuating circumstance. We're so very anxious to point these out to God and to ourselves that we are apt to forget the really important thing. That is, the bit left over, the bit which excuses don't cover, the bit which is inexcusable but not, thank God, unforgivable. And if we forget this, we shall go away imagining that we have repented and been forgiven when all that has really happened is that we have satisfied ourselves with our own excuses. They may be very bad excuses. We are all too easily satisfied about ourselves. Sin turns sinners stupid. And once we miss the the blame and and justify our sin, then then all of a sudden we, we no longer are looking for forgiveness from God. To be brought back into relationship. To be brought back into intimacy. To be brought back into fellowship. We're looking for Him to excuse us. To accept our excuses and our extenuating circumstances and count that as our righteousness before Him. 
Sin continues to disrupt our relationship with God over and over and over again and shows how deeply seated our rebellion against Him is. Even if we confess, we are only often not really confessing, not really asking for forgiveness, but instead looking for God to accept our excuses. See, sin is this slippery slope. And once the fall happened... The sliding began. And it went very, very quickly. Sin is compounded quickly. We're going to see this as we continue through Genesis. It goes bad really, really quickly. But do we ultimately see that the main disruption, the main problem with the fall is in relationship with God? Do we see the disruption in relationship with God and how it's caused what's going on here with Adam and Eve? See, this is the worst of the fall. The worst part of these few verses is that Adam and Eve are hiding from the presence of God when they should be enjoying His presence. This is the result of sin. And we know this in our lives too. When we should enjoy God's presence and want to spend time with Him, we barely have the inkling in us to get up and write out a prayer. Or read through His Word briefly before we go on to what we really want to do. To really encounter Him takes a lot of work for us because we ultimately are alienated from Him because of sin. Instead of running to God, we run away. And when He comes, we want to hide. When He questions through His Word, we make excuses. When we should confess and ask for forgiveness, we shift blame. And we ask for Him to accept our excuses. Sin has disrupted relationship with God. The very God we were created to know and enjoy and live for. But God is gracious. He didn't wipe humanity off the face of the globe. He doesn't stand far off from the brokenness that has happened. But He enters into the brokenness. He initiates an encounter with man. And even today, as we stand here hearing from the word of the Lord, God is seeking an encounter with us. He is initiating that encounter in His people and in His word, inviting us in and back into relationship with Himself. As sinners whose shame is exposed in more harmful ways than we even know before a holy God, we might naturally run and hide. Flee from the very presence of God. We deserve death. But we need to behold this God in Genesis 3. Because this is a God who graciously initiates. Who comes to man instead of man coming to Him. Who walks toward them in the cool of the day instead of storming in in the middle of night. He's inviting us in. He's good. He's gracious. He calls out. He questions. He doesn't hand down the sentence immediately. And the way as exposed sinners to keep from running and hiding in shame from this God is to know that this God stands ready to forgive. Amen. And He does stand ready to forgive. 
God has given us this sacred symbol, this sacred meal to remind us of how He's provided a way back into relationship with Himself. He reminds us that this is a way to enjoy God's presence again. And it comes through the body and blood of Jesus. This is a reminder that God stands ready to forgive because His body was broken, because His blood was poured out, that we might receive forgiveness, that we might enjoy life with God and life eternal with God, enjoying His presence as we were made to. But the only way that happens is through the body and the blood. It's through Christ. He's made a way. He invites us into this way. Come. Come and take. Take and eat. Those good words only after Jesus is crucified. And so we're going to be reminded today as family of this sacred symbol of how God provided a way for us through our faith in Jesus to be made right with God. So we would encourage you, if you are a believer... Come, tear off a piece of the bread and dip it into the juice and be reminded that God made a way to fix the brokenness, to fix the alienation and the disruption that your sin has caused between you and Him. And He's done it through Jesus. If you're not a believer, do not take this meal. It is okay to stay seated. We want you to take Christ. If you don't know what that looks like, please come and talk to a believer. Talk to one of us. We'd love to share with you what it means to take Christ. But if you're a believer, be reminded of what Christ has done, that you're currently in relationship with God because of what He's done, and you look forward to the future, where finally and fully sin will be done away with, alienation between God and you will be completely done away with. You'll see God face to face. You'll become like Him because you'll see Him as He is. We look forward to that day, and in this meal we pronounce it's coming. So let's pray, and then we will take this sacred family meal. Father, thank You so much for being gracious, for initiating with us, for coming after a lost world that would never come after You. God, I pray for people who have not trusted in Christ, that their hearts would be softened, that they would see the goodness and the graciousness that You have displayed so clearly in Jesus, and that they would turn from their sins and live. God, I pray for believers, that we would be reminded again of Your gracious character and of Your goodness. And we would rejoice that we have standing with you when we deserved only death. And that God, we rejoice even now as we take this meal in faith. Knowing that we don't deserve a place at your table based on our own merit. The only way we can come to this table is by the blood of Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you are doing. And thank you that you're coming again to finally and fully stamp out the problems that got in in the garden. God, may it come quickly. Amen. If you're a believer, come. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip in the juice, and be reminded of your standing before a holy God based on the work of Jesus.